Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with A.J. Bain, the author of Dewey Defeats Truman, the 1948 Election and the Battle for America's Soul. This is his fifth book. He's also a contributor to The Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much for being here, A.J. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Well, before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We don't accept contributions over $5 and any monthly amount we raise over $31, which is the exact cost to produce the show, is given to charity. This is our fifth episode in our series examining the presidency. We've done biographies of both major candidates. We have covered presidential rhetoric. We've covered the cabinet. And next week, we're going to talk about whether the presidency is too difficult for one person to handle. But this week, campaigning. And I chose this particular book and author because it's essentially the opposite this campaign was in 1948 of what we're seeing today. The campaign, the Whistle Stop Tour, is retail campaigning at its finest. Harry Truman puts on a case study. So first, AJ, where does he stand in 1947 and early 1948 as the president looks ahead to the first time he's going to face voters in his own right? Is he used to being president yet? And is he popular? Excellent. So um, let me just start by saying the book I wrote before this one, The Accidental President, covers the first four months of Truman's administration. He becomes president. He never expected to be president. He was not prepared to be president, never been governor of a state, never mayor of a city, never had the money to own his home, own home, uh, no college degree. And this remarkable thing happens. He unites the nation at the end of World War II, 87% approval rating, which was higher than FDR. FDR ever saw. But then the post-war world world starts, which is where this book begins. And um, I don't think it's my thesis that any president could have really handled the situation uh, in a way that would have pleased a majority of Americans because so much had to happen and there was so much turmoil moving our economy from the wartime to peacetime. So there was a labor crisis, uh, racial unrest, um, homelessness, uh, massive amounts of inflation, a spike of in unemployment. And uh, the country had seen many years of New Deal uh, politicians in the Oval Office, and they were tired of it. So by the time uh, 1947 starts to come around and Truman's looking, deciding whether to run, America is already convinced that there's absolutely no way he could win and that he should, shouldn't even bother campaigning. Is he popular? No. <laughs> so unpopular is he that during the 46 midterm elections, there's this historic wave of Republican voters that captures the House, captures the Senate, both sections of Congress for the first time in many, many years. And even so, even at the midterm election, people think he can't win. And by the time they start thinking, Americans start thinking about 1947, they're trying to figure out a way, even the Democratic Party, to jettison Truman. They have this idea maybe they could bring in Eisenhower, who doesn't, you know, is not affiliated with the public party because Truman is so unpopular. During the 46 election, he was asked not to campaign for any congressional or Senate, you know, Senate candidates whatsoever because his name was mud. In fact, hmm. the Republicans in 1946, Republic, they, they, they campaigned with a two-word slogan, had enough, question mark, as in had enough of Harry Truman. So where is the United States in 1948? Your book opens um, with one of those paragraphs that makes you think 
we're hearing about today, but then you go, oh, by the way, this is 1948. And I want to read a little bit um, uh, to you. Uh, you write that there is a groundswell of white nationalism. There are calls for impeachment, a game-changing new form of media, and a president angry at the press, also an investigation of Russian election meddling from the FBI. Uh, has anything changed since then? <laughs> well, it's remarkable. When I started writing the book, I knew I wanted to come out during the 2020 election cycle because I knew there would be lots to talk about in interviews like this one. But two things happened along the way. One is I found a lot of material that I didn't expect to find, like the Russian meddling thing, like the whole idea in 1948 that a lot of politicians were absolutely certain that the Kremlin was going to try to influence our election here in 1948. I didn't expect to find a lot of that material. At the same time, events have conspired to make today's election feel so much like all the things that were happening in 1948. So uh, a lot has changed, but it's pretty bizarre to think that we're still arguing about some of the same things that they were arguing about in 1948. What do we do about Israel? What do we do about Black America? What do we do about racism, et cetera? The first chapter starts with a moment that is as moving as has ever happened in American history. Um, Harry Truman announces in the Oval Office the surrender of the Japanese, Parties break out all over. People outside the White House demand his appearance. They literally go there and are chanting for him to come out. And out he comes and says, really a, a very moving and emotional uh, quote, uh, this is the day for free governments. This is the day that fascism and police government ceases. This is a day for democracy. So relate that to his speaking ability that we see later in the campaign. Where does this failed businessman who didn't even get into politics and start practicing stump speeches until he was almost middle-aged. How does he learn to hit the right note extemporaneously like that? That's a wonderful question. One of the reasons for his unpopularity was his inability to orate. He was not a great public speaker. And he had come into office after FDR, who was, of course, an extraordinary speaker, had an extraordinary charisma and an ability to connect with America at all economic strategies. And had been practicing that his whole life. I mean, this FDR was right. a political creature from the day he, almost from the day he's born. He's emulating the greatest maybe speaker of all time in his, in his cousin, Teddy Roosevelt. Exactly. And, and when Truman comes in, he's using, uh, you know, some of the same speech writers, Judge Sam Rosamond specifically, that um, FDR had. And he, he fails to, to really connect. And there's this one really extraordinary moment where um, in the book where he's addressing um, a, a bunch of newspaper reporters who came in to just for one of the regular meetings that he might have had in the Oval Office. And he gives this little speech and it's boring and it's, it's a yawn fest. And you know, in the book, I'm quoting um, people who are in the room at the time through their diaries. Um, in fact, I've got Lilienthal's biography, right, or his diary right here on my shelf. The whole idea that suddenly he just starts to give this extemporaneous speech and he just says what he thinks and he becomes himself. He becomes not the president, but he becomes Harry. And everybody in the room is like, wow, why doesn't he go out on the campaign trail and do that? Why doesn't he just become not this, you know, president who's supposed to give these heroic poetic orations. What if he goes out and just be Harry? And um, that's what he decides to do. And that's what happens on the campaign trail. So describe the political layout a little bit here as this amazing campaign starts to get underway. Um, is he guaranteeing that he's going to run in his own right? 
And then you also have to, I guess, talk a little bit about where Henry Wallace and Thomas Dewey and Strom Thurmond and how they're all positioning themselves in the different lanes um, and sort of shape, you know, just explain to us what the shape of this race is going to look like. Exactly. Okay. So let me first say that coming out of World War II, there was this whole sense that this 1948 election was going to draw a line between the past and the future. It's the first election in the atomic age, first election in the television age first election, you know, after the war where both major political parties have to identify who they are going forward and who's going to re represent them. So the Republican Party is experiencing a, a really extraordinary identity crisis between the liberal wing, which is Thomas Dewey, and the conservative wing, which was really rooted on Capitol Hill um, by powerful congressmen like Robert Taft. And um, so the Republicans have their own thing going on and they have to decide going forward which side of that part of their party is gonna take control and Dewey wins during this extraordinary primary season. And so the liberal faction of the Republican party launches its campaign into the 1948 election, which means that Thomas Dewey's platform is really not that much different than the Democrats, uh, which is very alarming to the conservatives. Now, more importantly, I think in terms of the story we're telling now, Dem the Democrats leading up, they can't believe that Harry Truman is gonna win and the party is shattering before America's eyes. So for starters, Truman launches um, the modern civil rights movement in 1947. He becomes the first president to address the NAACP, the first president to campaign at the spiritual home of black America in Harlem. Uh, he desegregates the military. Um, not everybody in the Democratic Party is happy with us. So the entire section of Southern America, basically the former Confederate states, they rebel and form their own party, the Dixiecrats or the states' rights Democrats. And so before we get to that split, though, has Harry Truman guaranteed that he's running again? Okay, excellent. So no, he's not. And he makes this extraordinary decision right about a, little, right about a year before the election. And his reasoning to me is very interesting. He doesn't want to run. He's tired of the presidency. He calls the, the White House the Great White Jail because the job is so stressful. Nobody's happy with anything he's doing. And um, he's, he feels terrible about the fact that his political situation, his job, um, the effect it's having on his family, his wife and his daughter and his cousins, and he just wants to escape. He wants to go back to Missouri. And you know he's at retirement age, blah, blah, blah. But he thinks that what's happening in America is so critical. It's this critical time, our country at a crossroads. There's so much at stake. Um, that he has to run. He has no choice. His duty to the American people is such that he thinks he has to run, whether he wins or not. And so that's how he decides. And so Strom Thurmond, um, the party then splits partially um, over um, Harry Truman's support of the civil rights planks and the Dixiecrats walk away. Exactly. So the party shatters. The right wing, the, right, the conservatives of the party, which is really a very complicated situation. We can go into it if you like, but the whole, all the, con the, the former Confederate states were anchored. It was considered the solid South of the Democratic Party. And that whole idea had a lot to do with race in America. So you have these powerful white senators and congressmen who control the South. Uh, black voters are all but disenfranchised. Um, and so the whole idea of civil rights does not sit well with them. 
And even before this happens, that whole faction of the Democratic Party, they were essentially politically conservative and often voted along the lines with re Republicans on issues like taxes and all kinds of other things. Um, so essentially they break away from the Democratic Party over civil rights. And that's why, that's the beginning of the movement, why all of those states voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Alabama, Georgia, uh, South Carolina, all of those states were formerly the solid South of the Democratic Party, and now they're considered the solid South of the, of the Republican Party. What happens going forward with, with that we, is an ongoing drama, but that's how the conservative wing of the Democratic Party deserts Truman. Then you have the liberal wing of the, the Democratic Party that also deserts Truman, and that's Henry Wallace, former vice president, who launches the Progressive Party. And his reasoning in a sentence is very clear. He believes that Truman is responsible for the, this new Cold War, that Truman is, and the Truman administration is leading America into World War III with the Soviets, and he's the only man who can stop it. So he launches basically a, a peace campaign. Let's talk a little bit about foreign policy then. You brought it up. Um, so what's happening in Europe? Let's talk about Israel a little bit. And um, how does Truman start to um, cultivate um, campaign um, planks, campaign technique, and also um, just you know how he sees these things breaking down and um, sort of what stance he takes foreign policy-wise? Excellent. Um, let me start by saying this. Uh, it was an extraordinary moment when we saw Mike Pompeo standing with an American flag and an Israeli flag at the Republican National Convention. And I'm often asked what Truman would think about the world going on today. And I think that there's all sorts of ideas in which he would have agreed over here and disagreed over there. But that would have been troublesome for him because the first rule of foreign policy in the American government was that it was supposed to be nonpartisan, that we present to the outer world, whatever our conflicts are inside our own country, it was imperative that our foreign policy be united. And in fact, it was as, 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 as dog-eat-dog dog as the Republican versus Democrat um, fight was in 1948, as much as the Democrats and the Republicans were going after each other, they came together and agreed on foreign policy. It was critical that the outside world understand that politically we are united when it comes to policy with the outside world. So uh, let's start with Europe. Europe is devastated by the war. The whole, the whole nation is not recovered. And there's this idea that the Soviets are infiltrating all of these governments uh, and Sovietizing them. It started with Poland, and that's how the whole Cold War began. Um, and uh, in 1946 and 1947, there was this uh, argument over what was going to happen with Greece and Turkey. Basically, the Brits were supporting Greece and Turkey. And if the British were not able to support those governments financially, those democracies would fall and the Soviets would come in. And that's how it began with the Truman administration facing this idea of like, what should our foreign policy be in Europe? And they came up with this amazingly complicated and uh, extraordinarily uh, progressive policy. Democrats and Republicans joined together and they launched the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan. The idea is, can you imagine this happening today? Think about it. How about this idea? Let's take billions and billions of our tax dollars and give them away to foreign governments with very little uh, asking in return, just in hopes that democracy can survive in those parts of the world. Extraordinary. It, it took generations before these people could understand whether that was a good idea or not. Um, 
and Israel. Talk about Israel and um, the import of um, what Truman saw as, as the Jewish vote in America and how that relates to his policy in Israel and how tough of a line he has to stand on there. Excellent question. So let me answer that question by starting with this extraordinary scene. And I want in this book to, where there, I try very carefully to set scenes and find all the real dialogue that I can from great primary sources because I want the reader to feel like he or she is in the room when these decisions are being made. And there's this amazing scene where Harry Truman invites uh, George Marshall, Secretary of State, into his office. And Truman has his young uh, aide there, Clark Clifford. And they have to make this um, case to the State Department and ultimately to the Department of Defense that we, the United States, should support the foundation of a Jewish state in the Middle East. Okay, remember the Holocaust, six million Jews, refugee problem, all of these Jews are going to the middle, many of the Jews are going to the Middle East and they're absolutely demanding that they be allowed to uh, have their own homeland. And they had a good case. There are reasons why um, they believed they, they should be allowed to found a state there. Okay, going back to the decisions that were made in 1920, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so Truman's in this meeting and he's alarmed because the department, George, uh, uh, George Marshall, the Secretary of State, is adamant that we do not recognize a Jewish state for two reasons. One is the only way that a Jewish state will survive is if we send in American troops. And we can't do that. After World War II ending, American people won't stand for it. It's not our responsibility. The Department of Defense under James Forrestal is saying, we cannot support the Jews. And his reasoning is, we're going to have a war with the Soviets. We have this very important relationship with all of the Arab nations in the region. And 1948 would be the first year ever in which America imported more oil than we produced ourselves. And Forrestal and the State Department, they're sure we, need, we, couldn't, we shouldn't support a Jewish state because we're gonna to have to fight a war. We need the oil, we need the Arabs on our side. Truman realizes politically he has to support the Jews if he thinks he can win in 1948. And he does, he makes the case and essentially the Truman administration puts up a solid front that we're gonna support the Jews. It gets much more complicated than that as the campaign goes on. But um, we become the first, Truman becomes the first world leader to recognize uh, a Jewish state, um, and he wins the election. For the rest of his life, he insists, just like he did with the civil rights, uh, civil rights program, that the decision was not a political one, but a moral one. It just happened to work well politically. So let's talk about the conventions then. Um, as you well know, in 1944, Harry Truman is um, essentially not on anybody's radar, and he comes out of nowhere to become the nominee and FDR basically, or the VP nominee, and FDR basically shouts at him, if you want to break up the Democratic Party in the middle of a convention, you know, be my guest sort of thing, basically saying, uh, the boss is telling you to do something, you're going to do it. Um, uh, describe how this convention then um, is either the same or different in some ways um, in terms of Harry Truman's political fate. Well, it's extraordinary to think the conventions in those days are very different than they are now. Because these days, when the convention happens, the parties already know who the candidates are, et cetera. Back then, the conventions decided who the candidates were in many cases, particularly the vice presidency. So Truman goes to the 1948 uh, convention, 
and he has this extraordinary plan lined up. He gets there. It's, it's like the whole convention's a wet noodle. Everybody is sure they can't win. Everybody's despondent. It's 200 degrees in there. Um, where was it that year? I forgot what it said in the book. Philadelphia. Of Philly, right. Okay. And so uh, it's very lackluster affair. They have a power outage, outage. Everything is going wrong. And he shows up. There's a delay. He doesn't go on till two in the morning. It's the first political, the first televised Democratic political national convention. And is there a chance that he could walk out of there not as the nominee or he's, it's essentially a done deal by that point? For him, it's essentially a done deal by that point. Less so for the Republicans. Um, so he gets there, there's signs out front saying Eisenhower should run as a Democrat. Um, in the middle of the convention, the Dixiecrats hold this big, you know, protest and walk out waving Confederate flags. And Truman walks in at two in the morning, despondent crowd, and gives the best speech of his life. And the crowd goes instantly wild. And in the book, I have all of these people who are there describing what it felt like, how quickly this despondent crowd suddenly was like, oh my God, this is the most extraordinary thing that's ever happened to me. And, and people are amazed by what he says on civil rights and also on prices uh, that farmers can charge. And he also sets up this kind of villain in Congress. He really rouses, talk about red meat to the party base. He solidifies his party base at that moment. That's exactly right. And you can watch it on YouTube. It's so fun to watch his, his speech. I encourage people, check it out on YouTube. It's so interesting. But uh, there's a very complicated thing. I'm gonna, it's always hard to explain this one issue very succinctly and clearly. But Truman goes in there and he has a secret weapon that he re- unleashes at the convention. And his idea is this. The Republican Party had an identity crisis. Dewey is the liberal candidate. But the party, the conservative faction of the Republicans, pretty much set up the plank, or actually it was the liberal part that set up the plank, saying we want, we're going to support all of these issues that the Republicans in Congress would never agree to. So Truman walks in and he says he's going to call Congress back, from, uh, back into session, what he called the turn-up day session, an emergency session, um, and force them to enact the policies that are on Dewey's platform, because Dewey's policies pretty much agree with Truman. So the Republicans are now screwed because they think, wow, well, if we get Congress back in session and we enact all these laws, Truman will get the credit. But if they don't, then Dewey will look like a fool because he's clearly at odds with his own party. And so um, it works. The crowd goes nuts. I, I spend pages in the book explaining this. So it's, it's very clear and just how exciting and unprecedented it was. So as we head into the fall, uh, where does the race stand? You open one of the sections of the book with a great quote. Truman says, it's going to be the greatest campaign any president has ever made. Win, lose, or draw, people will know where I stand. Um, Maybe before I even have you answer that, where does someone who's not particularly enjoying being president and says, I'm called to duty, where does someone get... um, you know, oftentimes you hear people say to really do something well, you have to really enjoy it. You have to love it. How is he able to put all this energy and all this insistence behind his strength as a, as a president um, into his campaign, even though it's something that he's not necessarily loving every minute of? I think that's a wonderful question, really. And one that I've done, I've done a lot of talks about this book. And um, I haven't been asked that yet. And so I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. My two thoughts coming out of the box are, 
um, it was something I said earlier, I really think that he thought that the future of the country was at stake. I really think he did. And so he had this moral mission to make sure that his country was headed, headed in the direction that he felt it had to for the good of all Americans. I don't like broccoli. Is, I don't like broccoli, but I know I have to eat it and I'm going to eat yes. it darn well. Okay. Uh, yeah. And you're going to put some cheddar cheese on it and it's going to be delicious. <laughs> but the other thing is, I think that um, everybody counted him out. And you have to remember that he, when he became president, he was never elected the president of the United States. He was elected as a vice president and became president when FDR died. So I think that he felt it his mission because so much was happening and he really believed in himself and his president that he wanted to go out and prove that he, that he was a man and his platform was a platform and the Democratic Party at that time was a party that the American people would in fact vote into office. And that's so, what happened. So as he... Uh, as these these four campaigns now start out after their conventions um, or after you know the, the at least the two main conventions, um, just explain where the race stands and how uphill of a battle Harry Truman has in front of him. The pollsters, there's four major pollsters. One says, "I'm not even going to bother polling anymore because there's no way that Truman could win." And it was so much fun to constantly re reporting what the newspapers are saying because they're so over the top and they're completely arrogant contempt for Truman. And they really not, they really go after him because they think he's a punching bag. So every day Truman would read in the paper, just he's being made fun of. And newspapers all over the country by these editorialists uh, who really went after him, the polls counting him out, cartoons making him look like a fool. And at one point he even meets Dewey, it rubs off on him and he says, um, when you get to the White House, meaning, you know, talking to Dewey and saying, when you get to the White House, do something about the plumbing. Extraordinary scene. Again, <laughs> I try to make the reader feel like he's a, he or she is in the room when this stuff happens. And that scene, the only time they meet is in July. And Idlewild Wild Airport, which is now JFK, uh, was being dedicated. And so both candidates came. The largest display of air power ever in peacetime is flying overhead our biggest bombers it's a parade for the military and they meet and they shake hands and that's what truman says he leans over and says tom when you get to the white house fix the plumbing <laughs> uh so um to set this campaign up here i want to ask first of all how and when does he decide the only way i'm going to win this thing is to is to have the greatest retail campaign in the history of politics and i believe you say i'm going to go county by county in this country if i have to to bring my case to the people how does he decide to do that um great question to be honest with you there's a couple of documents that sort of spelled out politically this is what you have to support this is what the dangers are this is what's going to happen over here this is what's going to happen over there um, in terms of your question, that's all Harry Truman. He comes up with this idea. He knows the only way he can win is to break rules, but break the right ones. And he comes up with this plan to get on a train and do eight, 10 speeches a day. It's really, the nuts and bolts of this are extraordinary. He sets up a secret research unit in Washington, DC, and their job is to come up with facts for every little town he goes into and uh, in the White House, there are speechwriters that are writing the big speeches. All of that goes on a little airplane that flies out. 
the train comes in wherever it is that morning, picks up all that material, and then Truman goes for the next few days into these rural places, makes eight, nine speeches a day, makes speeches in his pajamas at 6 a.m., in the pouring rain at night. And everywhere he goes, he's got a little note card so he knows what's going on in that town. He knows there's a sausage factory that just got built. He knows that uh, there's a war hero who died. And he addresses the crowd and immediately breaks down the walls and says, hey, I care about you. And then he exposes these people to not the president, but Harry. And at the same time, he exposes them to the magic of the American presidency because he knows that 99% of the people he's gonna be addressing never in their life, never again after this, will have ever had the opportunity to see a man like that, the president, you know, before their eyes, cracking jokes, connecting. So he becomes really an American folk hero all along the way. The other thing I want to do to set up this campaign is to talk about the train itself. I want to, I want to, you know, see if you can describe this train for us. What would it feel like if we were on it? What was it like to be on a train in 1948? Um, I'm going to give you a few more foods for thought here. Can you describe who was on it? What's the presidential car like? Um, uh, you said Truman decides kind of where this thing is going to stop. Um, and then just talk a little bit about the advance work that was done, how the rallies are arranged. Um, but anyway, but, but the train itself, describe what this would all feel like if we could have been on the Truman special. Excellent. Okay, so here's, it starts like this. There's an advanced train. So say we're going in Paducah. The advanced train is there the day before to drum up. Harry's going to be here. Here's the time. Here's what he's going to be talking about. Show up. So that, um, and that guy will report by phone back to the Truman train. So when the train pulls in, there's a system all set up and all of this work will have been done. So the train pulls in. Uh, if you were to enter the train at the front, obviously the guy's running the train. Um, you, you step back, you start walking toward the rear of the train. There's a bar car and a food restaurant. And, you know, so interesting to look, you know, I have all the menus for everywhere they went, what right. was being served, how much everything costs, you know, and it was a different time. So, you know, it wouldn't, people wouldn't think twice about having trout with beer for breakfast, you know, and then you get into the um, reporter's car. And so picture a train car with windows on either side. You just have desks lined all the way with typewriters on them and an aisle down the middle and this thunderous, you know, constant hum of typewriters going. And then you've got um, uh, sleeping quarters. And um, if you have to imagine what it was like for people to live on that train for weeks and weeks on end, no laundry, no shower, um, just cigars and 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 burden and, and hard, hard work and little sleep. And then finally you get to the president's car. And let me paint that picture. You open, there's a locked door. That door had a lock on it so the Truman family could be alone if they needed to. And when you walked in, you saw a galley, there was a kitchen. And then you walk further than that, there's a dining room, which was uh, appointed as you would expect for a president of the United States. There's a you know tablecloth, nice chairs. There's the presidential seal on the wall. Then you go back beyond that, and there's a little lounge just for the Truman family that had a speedometer on it. So the president always knew how fast the train was going. And finally, um, three bedrooms, uh, a Jack and Jill for Harry and his wife. That was the only place where they had a shower on the train. And then Margaret. About that. Yeah, then Margaret's little uh, room, and, and that was it. How did they keep this thing stocked for all these months? Uh, nuts and bolts. They had it going on. And you have to imagine things didn't work then like they work today. So they would pull into a town and, you know, 
um, expect this to happen or that to happen and there was a miscommunication and um, so things did not always run smoothly. Sometimes Harry would come into a town and give a speech for the wrong town. Sometimes, um, you know, uh, there are all sorts of bloopers and bleeps, as you can imagine, that are, you know, there's plenty of comic relief in the book. But at the same time, you also have to imagine every stop they made, um, if it was anything but a small town, they would have a line. They'd be there for 15 minutes. The president would give a seven-minute speech. And then he would have to shake hands with every local leader there. So there would be 15, 16, 17 people with each, you know, 30 seconds to say, hello, Mr. President, blah, 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 blah. And then on to the next town. And the Secret Service, their job is very interesting too, what they did. Uh, you, do you want to talk about the Secret Service at all? Uh, sure. So what they, their main job, uh, by the way, the, the president's car was called the Ferdinand Magellan. It was outfitted with bulletproof glass. And it was uh, so heavy that if the train car actually ran over a bomb that exploded, it wouldn't tip over. All of these things that went through the Secret Service's head. And their main job, every time the train stopped in a smaller town, if it wasn't a big speech where that would happen in a stadium, their job was to fan out behind the train, put up a velvet rope to make sure that people stood 15 feet away from the president. He would step out on the black back platform and speak and anybody, you know, Anybody could have done anything, you know, anybody with a gun. There was no way to, for the president to be protected. And um, does Truman ever express, I mean, he, he had been the target of an assassination attempt. Um, I don't remember if it was before or after this, but does he ever express fear? Never. And the, Never. Assassin, the assassination attempt was after. It was after, okay. Um, and then um, do you want to describe the stops themselves? So he's on this incredible journey. He's going from county to county in the United States of America, a huge um, a huge uh, uh, geographical um, achievement to even make it that far and on a train. Um, so describe the stops. What would I have seen if I were in the crowd and the president's train pulls in? The first thing that would have struck you is, would be the monstrosity of the crowds, because that is something that is a theme that goes throughout the campaign is every single place they went they were shocked at the number of people who turned out to see a guy they were sure was going to lose. Um, uh, another thing you would see, they loved Margaret. Everybody loved Margaret. So Margaret was the first daughter, the only child of the president. She was, I think, 21 at the time. And she was an aspiring singer and she had sang on Broadway. And her job would be to come out and smile. The, the president would speak and then the first lady and the first daughter would come out on the back platform Margaret would hold a rose and throw it out to the crowd and they would all yell, sing a song, Margaret, come on, Margaret. And then um, off, off the train would go. One point I wanna make is, um, one thing I loved about writing the book is just the whole idea of getting to travel around the country. It felt like your own road trip because you go all these places, you experience what the president did, and that is what meant what to all of these different towns. What was important to them? What did it look like, smell like? What did they eat? And um, all of the speeches that he made, not all of them, but many, many of them are up on the Truman Library website. So for example, the president's train came right through my town, right where I'm sitting right now, and I can listen to that speech. So anybody who's here listening now, go to the Truman Library website. It's a little tricky to go and find it, but look it up. You can find audio recordings, and there's a good chance you can hear Harry's 1948 speech in your town. That's cool. Does the train still exist? The car itself, does that still exist? I don't think it does. 
Uh, how does the phrase, well, you, you say in the book, never had there been a president who felt so much like the average voter. How does the phrase, give him hell, Harry, become a thing? Throughout the campaign, he, he, he presents himself as a fighting candidate, a populist. He says, essentially, be careful because these people in Washington, if you vote the wrong people in, they will not be working in your interests. I will be working for the interests of all Americans. And becomes this, this fighting, these fighting speeches that come from his heart. Again, something we touched on earlier. They were not a speech, they weren't speeches given by a president. They were speeches given by a regular guy who was just out there um, fighting. And his main opponent, it's interesting to note, he didn't run against Thomas Dewey. He ran against the 80th Congress because he, he was really running against the conservative faction of, uh, of the Republican Party because again, Dewey agreed with a lot of what Truman was saying, so. So at what point does this gap, and it's kind of, I guess it might be hard to detect because polling was so different back then, but at what point does this gap between them start to evaporate? And do we start to see movement and people might start to say, well, I don't know if I'd count the guy out completely. So it happens in the last three weeks. And what's extraordinary is the press doesn't even notice. So the press continues to say, there's no chance. This is a joke. Harry's a fool. He's making a fool himself. Look at these dumb speeches. Day after day, uh, three weeks before the election, Newsweek comes out with a poll. Newsweek was a very important publication at the time, polling 50 different political reporters and thinkers, and 50 of them choose doing. 50, all 50. All 50. All 50. And it's interesting because Clark Clifford's uh, assistant, I mean, Harry Truman's assistant, Clark Clifford, they're at some little town and Clark gets off the, uh, the train and he goes to the newsstand and he gets the issue because he knows it's coming out. And he looks at it and he's like, oh. And he sticks it in his overcoat and tries to hide it. And the president sees him and he says, Clark, what do you got there? <laughs> and Clark has to show him the issue. But my point is, the press didn't see it coming. The pollsters didn't see it coming. The pontificators didn't see it coming. But inside the Truman administration, they all kept diaries so we can all really feel intimately what they were thinking, what they were saying, what they were smelling. And they realized something was happening. And they all felt like the tides were changing. Something was shifting. They all thought that if the campaign could just go on for one week longer or two week long, weeks longer, they'd win. But even then, they thought they were catching up, and even they almost universally thought that they were going to lose on election night. I've heard the theory movement is more important than what the actual numbers are. Um, so election day, where is Harry Truman? Where is Thomas Dewey? Um, and how do they plan on taking in this, um, this momentous day in American history? I wanted to spend a lot of, like in my last book, I spent the first 38 pages on one day, April 12th, 1945, the day that FDR dies all that was happening on this that day. And in this book, I wanted to spend a real, a, quite a bit of time on election day. Because, you know, one of the things that made me want to write this book was a quote I heard saying, um, a lot of people for in the post-war world, you know, we can say we always remember where we were when 9-11 happened. Certain generations says they can remember where they were when JFK was shot. And this generation, they would say, they all remember where they were when Pearl Harbor happened, and when they found out that Harry Truman won in 1948. So I really wanted to spend a lot of time exploring America and what was happening on that election day and the day after. 
And one of the most poignant moments of the book to me is um, Dewey's story. Dewey, he's sure he's going to win. He, uh, the, the, his last rally is at Madison Square Garden. He gets on a train to go back to Albany because, of course, he's the governor of New York. And on the train are all these newspaper men. And he gives this off-the-record impromptu speech. And you, I have the oral histories from numerous people who are there at the time. And they all say the same story, that he told them all who was going to be in his cabinet. Because mm-hmm. he had already, he knew he was going to be a secretary of state, um, et cetera. So on election night, he's in his little suite at the Hotel Roosevelt, where he had an apartment. And he's listening to the returns. He's seeing TV for the first time on a political, you know, on election night. He's with his family. They just had a nice dinner with friends. And he starts to see stuff that makes him really nervous. And the Republican National Committee is sending out these press releases. It's nine o'clock. It's now confirmed that Dewey is the next president. 11 o'clock. It's now confirmed Dewey is the next president. And all of those are quoted in the book because we have them. So Dewey shuts himself in his suite, listens to the radio alone with a yellow pad, a legal pad. He was the prosecutor and a pencil. And he's writing this out and he's like, oh my God. And he's realizing what is happening to him. This doesn't look gonna, great. Yeah. He's going to lose the greatest election upset of all time. And he comes out and what he says, the first thing he says is, what do you know? The little son of a bitch won. I didn't even touch on Truman there. but Yeah. So give me Truman. Where's Truman that day? So Truman votes. He goes to a luncheon with his friends. In, in, in Missouri, correct? Right. He's in, he's in, yeah. Yeah. So he's in Missouri. He votes. It's his daughter's first chance to vote in a presidential election. And then he goes to this lunch with friends uh, hosted by uh, Roger Sermon, who was a local grocer and the mayor of Independence, Missouri. And in the middle of the lunch, he gets up and says he has to go to the bathroom and he disappears the Secret Service without telling anybody out the back door. And he goes and hides out at this uh, huge empty hotel, 30 miles out of town. He doesn't have a change of clothes, so he has to borrow a bathrobe. Um, you know, uh, and he goes to sleep. At what and, time? Um, probably, I can't remember, like 10 o'clock or something. Okay, but returns had started coming in. And do the returns look good or bad as he's going to sleep? Well, every time he's woken up, things are changing. And he, he keeps saying, I don't need to listen to the, I know I'm going to win. So he goes to sleep and then somebody calls and wakes him up and says, you have to win Ohio or Illinois or California. And he says, why? I'm going to win all three. And he goes back to sleep. And uh, at sunrise, before sunrise, the Secret Service um, wake him up and they like, Mr. Truman, you won. And I just love this. He, he says, damn it, we're going to Kansas City. <laughs> I, I like actually well up with tears when I think about it. So he goes to Kansas City to the Hotel Muhlenbach, which is his Kansas City headquarters, because he's from, you know, Independence right outside Kansas City. And everybody's there and they're going crazy. And he shuts himself in a room and he calls his wife. Tears flowing. And he says he won. Uh, my favorite quote from that whole exchange is he gets a phone call and someone says, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And he says, we did skunk him, didn't we? That's right. I love that quote because a lot of people who worked in the campaign, that's how they felt. And when does the picture get taken? Perhaps the greatest picture in the history of American politics. <laughs> um, two amazing things happen in the city of St. Louis during this campaign. One is Truman gives his last speech in Madison Square Garden and on his way home, he stops in St. Louis 
and gives this amazing speech at the Kiel Auditorium that blows the crowd away. Um, it's the last speech he ever makes in a campaign of his own. And it's, it goes down in history as this amazing moment of the campaign. And then he wins and on the way back from Kansas City to Washington DC, stops in St. Louis. Uh, it's so this now, is the day after the election now, correct? It's at, well, November 2nd is the after. election. November 3rd, and now this is November 4th. Okay, okay. He's on his way back, and somebody gives him this issue of the, of the Chicago Tribune. And it was really, there's another thing I do in the book. People know that the Chicago Tribune incorrectly reported with this banner headline, Dewey Defeats Truman, and 150,000 copies of its first edition. But it was reported all over the world, in Munich, um, in New York, um, in Women's Wear Daily, all of these, in Life Magazine, <laughs> all of these places it was reported that Dewey was now the president. And so describe the moment. So, so it, someone hands him the picture and he holds it up. I mean, just describe what, what we should all, when we look at that picture, see in his face. Well, to me, I don't think you'll ever see, ever, such unbridled joy as you do in his face at that time. I'm looking at the picture right now. Hmm. And... To me, the most important thing, what I see in that face is that he knew it was a historic victory and he knew that everybody for centuries would be talking about it and that everybody would say that really when it came down to this is a victory, not of a campaign, not of a, uh, of a political party, but of a single person. He had seemingly done it all, all by himself. Talk about today. Um... We're in COVID times. No one can run a campaign like this. Um, you can't answer the question how Truman would have campaigned in the age of COVID because I don't even know the people who are campaigning right now know the, how they can campaign in the age of COVID. But what advice would he give to the two people running for president right now, barring go out and meet every voter? Um, you know what? Your questions have been wonderful and extraordinary. And this is not a criticism, but that's the easiest one to answer. And I'll tell you why. Uh, in the book, I talk a lot about what actually happened. Why, how did Truman win? What, what, in terms of the actual ballot box, what happened? And uh, Truman thinks that um, big city labor turned out for him in, in a big way, and that really turned the tides. Um, and Black America voted for him, and that made a big difference in certain places like California and urban centers like Los Angeles. Um, do we believe that the farm vote which was very traditionally Republican, abandoned him, and that's why he lost. If you're to ask me, I think so confident were people that Dewey was going to win that a lot of people didn't show up and vote. So I would say today, whatever side you're on, whoever you are, just make sure your vote is counted because you don't want to regret it the next day. Um, what would he tell the two people running? About, about politics, what, what, what lesson can we draw today? And don't just focus on Trump and Biden, but what can we learn today about politics that Truman learned and taught us all in that campaign? Well, a few things. One is don't listen to the press because yeah. the press was all saying he was going to lose. Two is America loves an underdog. Three is America loves a fighter. America loves someone who's really going to go out and fight for what they believe. Um, and I, I, I would say that, you know, that there's a lot that he would look at today and be like, what the bleep? <laughs> he would yeah. be baffled by so much of it. 
and he, but he would say ultimately, it was very, very important to him to have a respect for the institution of the presidency of the United States. He didn't demand any demand for, uh, respect for Harry Truman, but he demanded a respect for the political process. I think he would be very, very troubled by the idea that it would be difficult for people who should be allowed to vote to vote. That would have really alarmed him. Um, he also would have noticed that no matter which party is in office, um, and you can look at the previous president, you can look at this president that um, for whatever reason, and there are many reasons that the respect for the office of the presidency is not what it was. And I don't say that to be nostalgic, but he would note that. I think, I think you're right. Yeah, I do. And you know, there's a, when he left office, his, his numbers were in the gutter. When he left in uh, early 1953 and Eisenhower came in, his approval rating was very low. He was thought of as, as the president that nobody hated because everybody liked him as a person. But he would left office thinking, eh, you know, people didn't think that highly of him. And his last thing he said when he walked out the door is he said, you know, maybe the world would be a better place if I had ended up not being president of the United States, but a piano player in a body house. That's actually what he said. But an amazing thing is we, have, we think so highly of him today. And the point I want to make is Republicans today are high on Truman. They love him. Trump quotes Truman before the UN General Assembly. Judge Roy Moore, hard wing, right winger. He quotes Truman on the campaign trail. But Nancy Pelosi quotes Truman in, in critical moments. And it's amazing that both of the parties, as divided as it is, everybody seems to embrace Truman, what he represented. And I think a lot of that is because what he accomplished in 1948. AJ Bame, author of Dewey Defeats Truman, the 1948 election and the battle for America's soul. Thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure, and I appreciate it. Great questions. Thank you. Thank you. And certainly check out that book and also his social media page, which is at facebook.com slash AJ Bame. Next week is our final episode before the election. We're going to talk with author Jeremy Surrey about his book, The Impossible Presidency. And remember, you can always check out our past episodes in the series. We examine rhetoric. We examine the cabinet. We also have full episodes on President Trump and former Vice President Biden. And I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Patreon.com slash History. We don't accept contributions over $5. And any monthly amount we raise over $31, the exact cost to produce the show, is given to a charity that promotes children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History, and Today conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.